Hey, my name's Bethany. I'm one of the servant leaders here at Ethos. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We hope you can lean in and enjoy this message. We're in week four of this series, Disruptive Discipleship, we're calling it, because, because what Jesus was teaching on in Matthew chapter five was actually intended to disrupt the discipleship that was taking place, the way that people were following rabbis or following just what, what maybe we would refer to as like ancient Christianity back when Jesus was teaching these things 2,000 years ago. And over the last few weeks, we, we kicked this off just three weeks ago with week one where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, they will receive the kingdom of heaven. And we identified in week one, if you weren't here, kind of a quick recap, that, that to grow kind of in this virtue of being poor in spirit, it simply, it simply requires requires that we begin to defer our will to the will of God. And then two weeks ago, we, we, talked to, we talked about when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, which kind of sounds a bit like oxymoronic, like blessed are, you're blessed when you mourn. And Jesus said, yeah, because it's when you do that you're going to receive comfort from God. Like God wants to comfort you. That's, the, that's our heavenly father. He desires to show us comfort. And there's a lot of mourning taking place just probably in your own life individually, but then also, of course, if you just watch the news and what's going on all over the world, and, and hopefully you can find encouragement. I believe that we can. No, there's no doubt in my mind, actually. We can find encouragement when we mourn by receiving the comfort of God. You can go back to that and lean in if you, if you need to just understand what that looks like. And then last week, we, we talked about what it means to be meek. When Jesus said, blessed are the meek, they're going to inherit the earth. Right? We don't use this word meek very often. Certainly don't use it to describe other people. It's not an adjective. That's, that's kind of frequent on our tongue. And what does it mean to be meek? We said it's strength and influence under God's control. Now, if, now if you consider ethos to be your home church, if you're a part of this family, this community here, I want to encourage you, if you weren't here or weren't able to lean into the first three weeks, to, to go back and listen to them because we're going someplace. Like, I really believe that what God wants to do over these, throughout the course of this series is disrupt our discipleship. Like, there's a, he's, I really believe this, catch this, I really believe that if Christians begin to take the teachings of Jesus seriously, the world may take him serious too. And so it's time for us to kind of disrupt, like, all right, let's, let's take this seriously. Let's, let's lean into saying, God, I want you to disrupt what I've maybe historically thought of as what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so we're going to jump into this fourth beatitude today, and it begins in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, where Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Everybody say righteousness. righteousness. For righteousness, for they will be filled. I want to... I want to talk from a message entitled, A Compelling Community of Kingdom Righteousness. In fact, I want us to pray one more time today, mostly for me, all right, because this was a little bit of a more challenging, I'll share with my wife last week, or just last night, rather, a little bit more of a challenging teaching to kind of put together. And last minute, I flipped it all around just this morning, and so, so, so I'm actually, this is actually a, this is a selfish prayer. I'm asking you if you'd pray with me for just a moment. Father, we thank you again for these moments that we have to gather together, and God, we just, we, we just don't take this lightly, this opportunity that we have to gather. Lord, we know that church is so much more than a gathering, but we also know it's not less than a gathering. And so we thank you for these moments, and we cherish them, and ask that you would make up the distance between what I prepared to say and what you want to speak to every single heart and mind in here today, myself included, online and in the room, in your name. Everybody who agrees said, amen, amen. Um, how many of y'all would agree with me? Um, or, or how many of y'all can at least relate with me that people who drive in the left lane and they drive slow, they're some of the worst people in the world. You know what I'm saying? Like, come on, somebody. Like, they're just wrong. Like, they're flat out wrong. And 
Like there's some things in life that are just wrong and that's, that's one of them. Or like when you hit back-to-back lights, you know what I mean? That's, that's wrong. Come on, Colin. Let's, you, you're driving down Polaris Parkway, and sometimes you hit back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back lights if you're headed to Westerville. And, and it's just, that's wrong. There's something about it that's just, clearly it's, it's wrong. I'm, I'm from outside of Philadelphia, PA, where like there's a sub shop on every corner. Like it's, that is God's good gift to me. And I love a good sub, but one of the worst things about a sub is when you're eating it and all the stuff falls out of the sandwich. You know what I mean, Justin? Like it is, and there it is on your plate. You're like, now I'm just eating bread and that's not a sub. I want, I want the goodness inside. Like it's just, it's not meant to be that way. It's, it's wrong. How about this one? I know you can relate with this one. You're walking through a store. Somebody's talking really loud on their phone. But they're not just talking loud, they actually have the phone on speakerphone. It's wrong. Like I'm trying to pass to you today, okay? Like just lean into this for a moment. But my son, our son Judah, he, he does not like to sleep by himself. And we, we've really been struggling to get him to sleep in his room all alone. And recently he told, he told my wife, he said, Mom, why do you get to sleep with your friend, but I don't? <laughs> I thought, someday, son, I'm going to share with you why, but you're too young for that right now. And, and, and he's like, that's not fair. That's just, that's just wrong, right? Like, some things just are wrong. We're, we're kind of being silly, but at the same time, like, we, we all carry this profound desire within us to see the wrong things in this world be made right. That feeling, that desire for wrongness to be rightness, it's, it can be summarized as as righteousness. It's this craving within us to see things become righteous. When Jesus, when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he, he's kind of tapping into a familiar experience. Like the, the audience of the day would have understood what it means to hunger and thirst. This is not uncommon. It, of course, it's not uncommon much in our, our world as well, but we don't really, we don't really starve for food or for, or for water in kind of our society today, but, but they did then. So when Jesus says hunger and thirst, they, they understand like, oh, we hunger for food and thirst for water, but he says, I want you hunger and thirst for, for righteousness, for the wrong things to be made right. In fact, one of the fourth century desert fathers, he goes by the name, went by the name Abelot, he, he said this, that hunger and thirsting for righteousness is the overwhelming longing that life should be on earth as it is in heaven. And I think, I think for those of us who slow down just long enough to lean in and see the wrongness of our world, we have this within us, within us too, don't we? Like, like man, I just, I just wish things would be made right. Now, here's what I want us to, to understand this morning, because there's a lot, there's a lot that I'm going to say today, and, and sometimes in like some talks, some sermons, messages, you can kind of tune out and zone out for a moment, and then kind of come back in at the end, and be like, I get what you're saying. This, this one today is sort of like, you kind of got to get it all, okay? So there's a lot of different puzzle pieces going on here today, and, and I want you to catch this, that this word righteousness, it, it comes from the Greek word dikesine, and, and it literally, it's kind of have a two-fold meaning. It literally means justice and righteousness, or the state of being justified. So there's kind of this two-fold meaning here, and I want to unpack both of these. I want to unpack what it means, what, what Jesus is referring to when he says hunger and thirst for justiceness, or for justice, justiceness, for justice, and what he means when he says, I want you to hunger and thirst for the state of being justified. Now, we got to understand God's vision 
of righteousness. And, and here's why. Catch this if you can. If, if we don't understand God's vision for righteousness, we will fall prey to whoever happens to seize the cultural microphone in the moment and push their agenda upon us, and we will live with the shifting cultural values rather than kingdom virtues. And this, by the way, ethos, this is exactly what's happening right now in our world. This is exactly what's happening in the church right now in the world. And it's the reason why we need a disruptive, a disruption to our discipleship, because we have shifting cultural values rather than concrete kingdom virtues that we can lean into and understand, no, no, no this is not, not that, this is what Jesus means. And so we have to be able to compare what the, the lies we experience in the world with the truth that Jesus preached consistently through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four Gospels. And so I, so I want to begin this morning by, by talking about justice. When he says, hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's literally, he, Jesus is literally saying, I want you to hunger and thirst for justice. Now, generally speaking, we know what justice is, but I love this quote from Dr. Derwin Gray when he says, how do we know that something is unjust unless we believe there is a standard of justice? Why do we get angry and hurt by suffering unless we know? Like, I, I don't think it should be that way. How do we know a line is crooked unless there's a straight line to compare it to? If we long for goodness, beauty, and justice, there must be one, God, who creates these things. I love this verse in Psalm 33. The, the psalmist writes that God loves righteousness and justice. He loves when his people are justified through Christ, that we'll get to in a moment, and justice. The Lord is full of, of unfailing love. In Amos chapter 2, God tells the prophet Amos, he says, he says, these people, they trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice. Everybody say justice. These people deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl, and as a result, they're profaning my holy name. They're making me look bad, is what he's saying. Because they deny justice, they're, they're, kind of, they're profaning my name, and people think that I am, me, God, I am something that I'm not, that I, that I, that I, that I want something that I don't, that, I, that I'm allowing something that isn't my will, and God says, no, 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 like, it's just because the people are denying justice. Now, now, Christianity, over the last 300 years in America, which is basically our entire lifespan, and, and, and I'm assuming it's gone back long before that, but, but just historically within America, Christianity has always been, there's always been an attempt to kind of categorize and even more so politicize the Christian faith. But, but Christianity is a category-defying community. And to be a Christian literally means that we kind of stand apart from the attempt that people make to set us into a particular group or a particular category of people. Let me, let me say it like this, and I didn't come up with this. Tim Keller actually is the one who I stole this from, but, but he says, oh, you know what? So sorry, did I take that one out? Did I take that slide out? The category-defying community? I didn't, it's the next one, here it is. <laughs> that, that, that as Christians, we are to care for the poor, the vulnerable, the infanticide. We, we are inclusive of race, gender, socioeconomic. We, we, we preach enemy love, suffering without retaliation, sexual integrity, just to name a few. The point is that we're, we're neither Republican nor Democrat. Okay? And, and I know that that can kind of, like sometimes people don't like that, that 
sort of thing. And I understand that. I'm not saying you don't vote, okay? So like, don't misunderstand. Don't, don't put words in my mouth here and misunderstand what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that sometimes what we try to do is fit Christianity into a particular, but rather Jesus is saying, no, I want you to stand for my justice, not justice that the world is preaching to you or conforming to justice the way that you interpret what others think you should be doing or not doing. I want you to understand what justice looks like as it relates to, as it relates to my heart. And that, that verse that we showed just a moment ago in James 1, he says, James, the brother of Jesus, is writing here. He says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress, like in, in their moments of just, man, life's hard right now, and refusing to let the world corrupt you. See, the Christian life is less about our ideas about God and more of how we live with those around us. To follow Jesus and to turn a blind eye towards those who are hurting, oppressed, poor, ostracized, is a contradiction in terms. Because Jesus actually desires, this is what righteousness is, he actually desires that we lean into his justice and what he desires to make things just in the world again. Now, we're going to come back to that in just a moment. That's, that's what I believe, what I'm just going to define right now as righteousness through us. Justice being righteousness through us. Now, now just hang with me because we're going to come back to that in a moment. But, but now, now I want to identify, identify righteousness or the state of being justified. And this is that twofold meaning of what Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice and for the state of being justified. Now this, this idea, this state of being justified, we first gotta understand that, that what Jesus does not say is that blessed are those who pursue blessedness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after God's blessing. That's not what he's saying. See, kind of the, the law of the universe, or the law of the world is that if you try to be happy, if that's the goal of your life, you never will be. Have you noticed this? That like anything that you center your life on outside of the kingdom of God, outside of Jesus, Holy Spirit, God our, our Father, it's going to leave you unsatisfied. It will, and in fact, some of you have seen this, whether in your own life or, or just as you've kind of observed the lives of others, it, it'll, it could even destroy you, really. And the heart of the gospel, like the heart of the good news of our Savior, Jesus, is that if you want to have the blessing of God in your life, if you, if you want to be born again, which is that, that word, if you're kind of new to church, that word that we use just means like, if you want to be made right with God and actually experience new life, a, a new beginning, a genesis of life, so to speak, you have to admit that you don't have a righteousness of your own, a righteousness of your own making. Let me see if I, can, if I can illustrate this well. And this is, this is what I was telling my wife last night. I said, I, said, I, I, I want to try to make this as simple as possible so that we catch this. Because, because I think that the challenge is that for a lot of us who grew up in church, we instantly hear the word righteousness or born again and kind of have our own interpretation of what that means. And it's not necessarily wrong. I just know that in my own life, it's become incomplete. And so, so, so catch this right here. Here's, here's what I'm referring to. Righteousness literally just means rightness. In our English vernacular, it just means being, the state of being made right. It's to be right with somebody, to be approved, to be received, to be accepted. All of these things are, are kind of rooted in this English word, in this English word righteousness. Now furthermore, let me illustrate like this. Um, if you're going for like, you have a big audition that's coming up. 
Or maybe it's an interview for a job that you, that you really, really want, and like, this job could just change the trajectory of your life in some regard. Or you're about to go on a date with somebody that you have, you've been working really, like you've been like putting your best game out there to get this date. You, you know what I mean? Or, or, or you, you've got a big exam coming up, you're about to, you're trying to get into a new degree program. What do all of those things have in common? They're all extremely nerve-wracking. They're all pretty anxiety-inducing. Well, why? It's because, because you're waiting to discover what the verdict is going to be. Like, will I be approved? Will I be accepted? Will I be received? Will I be seen as righteous, as good enough for that thing that I'm trying to enter into? And psychologists They'll tell us, they, they, they come in line with God's words so well that we, we all struggle with a sense of being acceptable. And so as a result, we, we try to find acceptance. We, we all do this. None of us are exempt from this. We try to find it in our career or certain relationships or if I'm attractive or, or, or not. We, we vicariously live through our children all in an attempt to kind of be seen as accepted, to be seen as, as righteous. And think about this for just a moment. And we can just kind of be a bit contemplative for, for, for a second on this tiring Sunday daylight savings day, okay? Just, just reflect for a moment. What makes you feel good about yourself? What makes you feel acceptable? What makes you feel accepted? That thing, that thing that you can identify is what I would say the thing that you are hunger and thirsting for righteousness through. And what Jesus is telling is, I want you to hunger and thirst for my form of righteousness, not your form of, of righteousness. See, see, we all kind of inherently identify and understand what Jesus is saying, in, or rather what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, where, where he writes that no one, will, no one will be declared righteous or accepted in God's sight by our own works. Like, we just, we can't do it. Some of you are familiar with this scripture. Rather, through the law, we, we become conscious of our own sin. In other words, what Paul is saying is, through our own attempts, we realize, like, man, I just keep falling short. Like, I just, I can't quite measure up. For all of sin, verse 23 of Romans 3, for all of sin, we, we all do it. Like, we're all in the same boat. We all fall short of that, of that effort, that attempt that we make to be seen as righteous, to be seen as, to be seen as accepted. In fact, I really believe that the more you understand the holiness of Jesus, the more you become acutely aware of our own personal unholiness. In fact, I had a friend tell me recently, he said, Jordan, I've discovered that the closer I get with Jesus, the more acutely aware I become of how I just don't deserve to even be close to him at all. And he said, that's actually a really great feeling that I have. It's, it's, it's not condemnation but rather it's a greater awareness that Jesus has done for me that which I could never have earned and done on my own. In fact, that's the feeling that Peter had in Luke chapter five, the apostle Peter, who, who is like one of the you know, heroes of our Christian faith. He, when he was first introduced to Jesus and Jesus was, was compelling Peter to come follow him, Peter was just a fisherman, and Jesus comes along, and Peter's like, well, hold up, hold up, he's like, I'll come follow you in a moment, and then, and then Peter is told by, by Jesus, he's like, hey, hey, 
hey, Peter, while you're fishing, why don't you go ahead and throw your nets to the other side of the boat? And Peter's like, man, I've been fishing for a long time, and you're just a teacher of the law. You're just a rabbi, but I mean, I guess I'll do what you say, because I want to respect you, and I don't want to dishonor you. I just want to be kind to you. And so he, he does so, and as a result, he experiences a miracle where the nets are overflowing with fish. And Now, now, now catch this, and he, here's what happens. Here's how Peter responds in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus, and he said, oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. The miraculous didn't just lead to a breakthrough in Peter's life. It led to a breakdown of Peter's pride. The more he became aware of who Jesus really is, Peter became aware of his own non-righteousness, his own unrighteousness. So to know the blessing of the kingdom, you got to admit that we're just not righteous before God. That on our own, catch this right here, God is displeased with you. Like, on your own, God's displeased with us. But when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you realize that God is not pleased with what Isaiah calls our filthy rags of righteousness, which Isaiah is simply identifying God's not pleased with our own attempts to try to be made right with him. He looks at me, he's like, those are just rags, all the good stuff that you're doing. It just doesn't measure up to my holiness, to my righteousness. Now, before you dismiss me, and you're like, Jordan, you're usually way more encouraging than this. Maybe you grew up in an environment, in a home or a church, where you were taught or you were led to believe that God is always mad at you. We don't preach that here. And for good reason, because we believe that our Heavenly Father is a great Father. He's not the picture of your earthly Father. He's the perfection of a Heavenly Father. But at the same time and in the same breath, we have to identify that there is an element of truth to God's displeasure and anger towards humanity. And here's what I think is happening. I just want to identify it like this. I think what I've seen happen just in my own lifetime, and I think as I kind of look at church history, we can kind of trace this back to somewhere around the early 1980s when this started to kind of unfold. But... But I think what happened is the disease of cheap grace entered the church. And some of you may have heard it referred to before as sloppy grace. I'm kind of getting deep on some things here right now, so just hang with me. Don't, don't miss what I'm saying here, because it's going to get better here in a moment. But, but some of you heard it referred to as sloppy grace. I like the word cheap grace a lot better, because the grace that Jesus endeavored to give to you and to me was not in, ex- in an inexpensive grace. He gave his life for that grace that he wanted to extend to us that we can receive freely. And we are, not to, we are not to treat it like cheap grace or sloppy grace and abuse his grace and just do whatever we want with our lives and be like, well, I'm just going to throw some grace on that then and just kind of receive his forgiveness. And, and God is so good that he will still forgive you. The more we understand God's love in our lives, though, the less we want to displease him, though, too. So catch this right here. The disease of cheap grace can produce some of the most selfish and contentious leaders and people on earth. And this is what I've seen happen both in my own life and in the collective lives of so many of my friends. As I've seen, we've just kind of leaned into what sloppy grace or this cheap grace. As a result, we just, we're just, we need a disruption to our discipleship today. That's, that's, kind, of, that's, kind, of what I'm, that's kind of what I'm getting at right now. And so God's anger... It's really a result of God's love. God's displeasure is a result of God's love. Like, have you ever loved an addicted person before? 
Have you ever loved somebody who was destroying their life because of the decisions that they were making and you knew it? And they even kind of knew it too? What happens when you love that person? You want to just kind of, you just kind of want to get a hold of them. You kind of, you kind of just want to shake them and be like, don't you see what you're doing to yourself? Like, don't, like when you really love them, you don't just turn your back towards them. Like, you're like, no, I, like I, I got, there's something better for your life. Don't you see it? Can't you see how special you are? Can't you see how unique you are? Can't you see how deeply you're, you're, you're so loved. Why would you do that? And I think that's sort of how like God is with, with us in a, in a sense, because the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. Indifference, by the way, is the final form of hate. And it's when we become indifferent even to the sin or the suffering or the pain of the world that what we are saying is that, like, I hate you. I don't care. I become indifferent to it. Which is why we talked about two weeks ago, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll receive comfort. And we identified, like, like as followers of Jesus, it's actually imperative that we don't become numb to the pain of the world. We have to guard ourselves and ensure that we're not overly consuming all of the news that's coming to us. Because if we do, we can, we can, all, we can become so burdened by it all that it starts to, we become depressed in it. You know what I'm saying? Like anybody else ever feel that before? So you gotta be careful. You gotta filter it. You gotta filter it appropriately. And yet we also can't become indifferent to it because that really is hate. And love doesn't turn its back on pain and suffering. Love actually turns towards pain and suffering. And here's my point is that God is not indifferent towards you. In other words, God doesn't hate you. No, no, he loves you. He provided Jesus, by the way, as proof, which is what we're about to celebrate in a few weeks at Easter, and I can't wait. But that's what Jesus was in, that's, that's what the arrival of Jesus was proving to us, is that God loves us. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, when Jesus says, hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus is pointing out that those who enter the kingdom are not just looking for some righteousness, they're not just looking for a version of righteousness, they're not just looking for a partial truth of righteousness, but they want a perfect righteousness, a full righteousness. I love how Tim Keller says it like this. He says, what's the difference between a Christian and a moralist? Both repent of their sins, but a Christian repents of their righteousness as well. A moralist says, I've sinned, but look at some of the good things that I've done. I go to church, I'm a good father, I've got a good career, I, I give some of my money away to the poor. Like, look at the good things that I've, that I've done. And a Christian says, no. Like I, like, I repent of even those things, too. I give, I give that up as well. I see the only way that Jesus Christ can receive me is if I completely rely on what he has done and not anything that I have done. And then the minute that you transfer your trust from yourself over to, over to Jesus, you then receive God's verdict. And God's verdict is, that's my beloved child in whom I am well pleased, in whom I am thoroughly pleased and so then when you go to the interview or you go on the date or you go to the audition, you're a completely new person then. You're, you're born again because the things that you've built your life on no longer determine your identity or worth. You're not struggling for that version of righteousness 
anymore. Are you, are you seeing this? Like, so when you're successful then, you're not puffed up by pride. And when you fail that interview, you're not cast down by insecurity of, of failure because those things are no longer your pursuit of righteousness. Are you catching this? Probably not. Okay. So, 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 so here's kind of, I, I kind of said all of that to kind of get to this story, really. That was all kind of a preamble for this, for this story. I'm, I'm summing up this one point of righteousness in you with, with this story. And it's a story that I read in a book by Becky Pippert. Some of you have heard of, of Becky Pippert before. She's a well-known Christian author and, and speaker. And she talked about how after one of her speaking engagements, she was at this large conference, and this young 30-year-old woman had come up to her. And this, this girl was was raised in a very, very, very conservative evangelical church. And she was engaged to be married to this man, and they were going to get married in six months. And both she and her fiancé were really involved in the church when they discovered that she was pregnant. And they knew that if they, if people found out that, that she was pregnant, she was going to be ostracized. Very, very, very conservative evangelical, kind of this old school evangelical church. And, and, she, and she knew, like, we can't tell people about this. So her and her fiance, in order to kind of avoid the embarrassment and shame, they, they decided to get an abortion. And she came up to Becky Pippert and said, this was a few years ago now, she said, a few years ago, here's what happened. And I remember on my wedding day, as I walked down the aisle, this woman said, everybody was looking at me like the beaming bride. And she said to Becky, what I was saying to myself in my heart was, I couldn't stop this voice that said, you're a murderer. And all the way down the aisle, she said, you were so worried about showing these people what you really were. You were so afraid of being exposed that you would murder, that you, would, you went all the way to murder this life just so that you wouldn't look bad. I know what you are, the voice kept saying, and God knows what you are. And so she comes to Becky and, and she says, I've confessed this thing a thousand times over and over and over again. I'm obsessed with it. I'm depressed as a result of it. It's running me into the ground. I'm emotionally a wreck. I don't know what to do. How could, how could God possibly forgive me? I know that he forgives me, but I can't even forgive myself. And then Becky Pippert, in all of her wisdom, says that she suddenly had an idea. She swallowed hard. She prayed. And she said, my dear friend, Jesus Christ had to die for all of your sins. Sins of the religious and the non-religious. Sins of the Nazis and the victims. Sins of the moral types and the immoral types. And we were all responsible for the death of the only innocent man who ever lived. The sin that caused you to destroy the life was pride. And it was pride that destroyed Jesus Christ's life 2,000 years before you ever showed up. And as Luther said, we all carry about in our pockets his very nails. You were already a murderer before this happened. And it was still totally paid for long, long ago. And says the girl then turns to Becky and she says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're right. I always had in my head, I always kind of, always in my head believed that I was a sinner and my sins were responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. But now I see it. And I came to tell you that I did the worst thing imaginable, and you told me I've already done something worse than that. And if I'm worse than I've imagined, if I've killed God's son, and that can be forgiven, then anything else can be forgiven too. So why was the woman so depressed? Why did she say, I can't forgive myself? Because all along she thought she was a Christian. She thought she was a Christian. She intellectually believed that Jesus died for her sins, but actually she was relying on her niceness for her salvation. 
She was saying, I'm sure God will accept me because look at what a great person I am. But you can never be fully accepted until you understand that you've been accepted at your worst. And you can never really even identify who you are at your worst until you see Jesus for who he is at his best. And that's why we often say the closer you get to Jesus, the more everything in our life begins to change. Which is why we exalt him and we magnify him and not our own righteousness or our own pursuit of being made right. But rather we say, Jesus, you're so awesome. And it's because of what you did for me and what you did for all of humanity that even offers up an opportunity for us to also, likewise, consequently be made right with you. That's righteousness in us. Justice is righteousness through us. Dallas Willard, he, he described the kingdom of heaven this way, and I love this. He described the kingdom of heaven, which is what we're talking about throughout this series in the Beatitudes. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, where God's will wants to intersect here on earth. And Dallas Willard described it like this. He said that the kingdom of heaven is where what God wants done, is done. Righteousness in us, the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness through us, the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm, I'm closing, kind of closing, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap this up. And this was kind of my concern when I was laying this message out, is that I was, I was, I was trying to figure out, like, how do, I, how do I kind of sum all of this up? So here's my best attempt, and honestly, I've just been praying. It's like, God, you just need to make up the gap here, because I, don't, I feel really insufficient right now to just even just kind, of, kind of put a bow on this, so to speak. But I, just, I am praying that we get this right now. And if you're newer to ethos, you can just sort of, maybe you're newer to your faith, I should say, or you're not sure what you believe about God, just kind of lean back and, and maybe just be like, oh, that's what Christianity is supposed to look like. And then you can judge us for falling short frequently. But, 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 but here it is, here it is. Here's a little illustration for you. Right now, the world that we live in, I should say it like this. The church, generally speaking, capital C church, I, I want to describe it as sub-Christian. Because maybe you're like me. What, what we have done in, in most, of the, most of the time what we do is we put a really strong emphasis on what I would just describe as like a sub-Christian culture. It's a subculture of what Christianity is intended to be. It's a culture. We put a great deal of emphasis on righteousness, the king, and what the King Jesus requires of us. We put a great deal of emphasis on that as it relates to righteousness in us. But historically, we haven't done a good job of putting a great deal of emphasis. The church, the church hasn't done a great job of, of historically identifying righteousness through us. The kingdom on the earth today and establishing his will on, like we understand righteousness in us for the most part. But we don't, don't always do a good job of righteousness through us. Now, post-Christian culture, and some of you have heard this term before, and again, in the fall, in September, we're going to do, do a series on this and talk about deconstruction and post-Christianity, post and, and, and I really believe it's going to help us. So I'm actually, it's probably one of the series I'm looking the most forward to. Like, I'm, I already started studying for it. I'm, I'm excited about it. But post-Christian culture is the desire for the values of Christ, but without the kingship of Christ. And this is what the world wants. In fact, there's a huge movement, justice-oriented movement, that's, that's been happening for the last 20 to 30 years now. But we're doing it outside of the name of Jesus. 
And so Jesus isn't necessarily involved in it. We're just trying to do it on our own. And so it's our own version of what human dignity looks like, justice looks like, equality looks like, mercy, peace, progress, flourishing. Look, it's our own. We haven't, we haven't set the bar or interpreted justice through the lens of what Jesus says justice is. That's post-Christianity. It's the values of the king without the king. The values of the kingdom without Jesus. And so here, here's, what I'm, here's, what I'm, here's what I believe wholeheartedly. I mean, I'm convicted about this. Like, I have a deep conviction. Like, you, couldn't, you could not convince me otherwise. That what Jesus is telling us in Matthew 5 or 6, ooh, I feel it right now. I don't know. Like, I don't, I'm, I, I, when I start to get like, really convicted, I get really emotional. It's weird and it's, 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 it's awkward and whatever. But anyway, this, this is what I'm getting at here. What Jesus is calling us to in Matthew 5 verse 6 is he's saying, I want you to pursue all of righteousness, the fullness of righteousness. Not subculture, not post-Christianity, but kingdom culture. It's my values interpreted through me as the king. This is kingdom culture. I want you to hunger, Jesus is saying, I want you to hunger and thirst for kingdom righteousness, for Jesus-centered, gospel-centered righteousness. In other words, justice is the kingdom without the king, if that's all that we pursue. Rightness with God is the king without the kingdom, if that's all that we pursue. But what Jesus is saying, I want you to hunger and thirst for, is the king ruling his kingdom. And all we are is just a vessel. God, I want you to do whatever you want me to do. Like, I want you to move in my life however you want to move. I want you, I want to defer my will to your will as we identified in week one of this, of this series. That's what he's saying when he, he says, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirsting for righteousness. The king ruling the kingdom. It's a result of this overwhelming longing that we ought to grow in. That's what, and we are, we're growing in this church. That's what we're doing. That's what this series is all about. I, I believe it's happening in you right now. I believe that there are seeds that are being planted online in the room where we're growing in this longing for life to be on earth as it is in heaven. And we're never, we're never, we're never going to right now see the completion of it. But that should not stop us from still pursuing it. Hunger and thirsting for righteousness as he said. So how do we do it? This is where I'm closing. Just a couple practical things. How do we grow in this hunger and thirst? First, we got to just, we got to go all in on righteousness and justice. Being made right with God, not in our own works, but because of what Christ has done for us, and seeing righteousness work through us. So we got we got to go all in on it and cultivate a hunger for the things of God. Like you... You will hunger for the things that you feed yourself. The more that I eat Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, the more I just want to keep eating Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's true. The more I eat spinach, the more I want to eat Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. <laughs> you know, it doesn't always work, but... Like, well, we got to cultivate that hunger within us. Like, and so here's my practical thing. Never stop reading the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. Just keep reading them. Just keep reading them. Just keep reading them. Old Testament, great. The epistles, the letters, they're great. But like the Gospels, 
Like you really want to see and know Jesus more clearly and his version of kingdom righteousness, kingdom culture. Lean into the Gospels. Jonathan Dotson says, we can't pick and choose the teachings of Christ that we want to keep, nor can we reduce Jesus to a poster child of our pet moralities or political persuasions. Rather, the collective weight of all of Jesus' teachings should drive us to Christ to find forgiveness and power to live moral lives that please God should drive us to righteousness and justice, regardless of how unpopular they may be. And we cannot do this alone, which leads me to the second thing. Second practical, how do we grow in hunger and thirst? Like, don't do it alone. Like, we, we need one another, like, to encourage one another, to spur each other on. Like, you know, that's a real thing, man. Like, you try to follow Jesus on your own, and you will go weary. You will become discouraged. You will become even a little bit jaded. You will start leaning into some lies that are not truth because you won't have people to correct you and to challenge you and to sharpen you as iron sharpens iron and to create some friction and some sparks in your life that we all need. Like, we need one another. Like, no, 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 like, like this is what Jesus means. And hey, have you ever considered? And let's lean into this together. We, can't, we cannot do this alone. And then lastly, and the most important, how do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? This is the most important one right here. Pray. Like, we, we got to just ask God. Like, I, I want to hunger and thirst for your righteousness, not my own version of it. In Psalm 119, verse 136, the psalmist says, rivers of tears gush from my eyes because, because I see what's happening in the world. Like, do, do tears gush from our eyes? Like, does our heart break? For the things that breaks the heart of God? And if not, how, how, do, we, how do we do that? Like, like I, I, I'm going I'm to guess that 99% of us are like, I want, I want it to. Pray and ask God. Like, God, would you give me that type of a heart? Would you, would you allow my heart to be broken for the things that break yours? And I'll close with this right here. I love this quote from Jonathan Darby. He says in his commentary that to be hungry is not enough. I must really be starving to know what is in God's heart toward me. Because when the prodigal son was hungry, he went to feed on the husks. But when he was starving, he turned to the father. That's, that's our desire. Like, God, I, I just want to be so hungry, so starving, that I just always, I just keep turning, I just keep turning to you. Because Christianity isn't just a way to get saved, but it's an entire way of engaging the world. Righteousness in us and through us. It's a public faith in that it possesses the rich resources that the world needs to address all the facets of life. And the answers to the problems and the challenges in the world, they weren't intended to come through the government. Though I'm thankful for the, for the opportunity and the ways and the places the government tries to bring about some change, some, some Christ-centered change, whether they realize it or not. But, but come on, it's supposed to come through us. It's supposed to come through the church. Like, like when we see a need, we're, the church is intended to be mobilized. To, like, like your individual sacrifice, it, it, it probably isn't enough. But the collective sacrifice of many, it is enough. That's why I'm always praying and asking. That's why we lean in and say, God, would you unite your church? Because when the church of Columbus is fully united, and it will be in our lifetime. I believe that. 
because when it's fully united, there is no need too great. There are enough, there's enough resources and there are enough followers of Jesus in our city alone, in Central Ohio alone, to meet every single impoverished need, to eliminate, to eliminate children in the foster care system, to, to eliminate children who are impoverished, to eliminate those who don't have access to education, to, to eliminate, but we do it in the name of Jesus. Why are you doing this? Because Jesus loves me so much. We're not, we are not secretly trying to hide our light under a bushel. Oh, no. I'm going to let it shine. I'm going to let it shine. I'm going to let it shine. Do you, you, you hear what I'm saying? Like, it's justice in the name of Jesus, interpreted through the king. So, whoo, Jesus, we love you. We honor you. And that's why we do this.